Radio Show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available, unprospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, welcome, and uh, give you a little rundown on how the show works. The Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent and are uniquely talented themselves. So in this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people, uh, one of the things that I love to do. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today, which is generally something I spend the day doing for for our clients. So hopefully you see how that works. The the word talent has a couple different meanings in the business world, and we really look to explore how those, uh, those two areas really impact business and how we can learn a little bit more about it. So my guests typically include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives uh, from all different types of industries. And typically I'm out at networking events or industry conferences, and I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue instead of me just uh, cornering them and asking them 50 questions that only I get to hear the answers to. And, And hopefully then you'll be able to learn some practical advice that will impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guest today, I do want to thank, uh, again, those of you tuning in live. But don't forget, you can submit your questions via Twitter right now. Just tweet them to at PeopleG2 and use that hashtag TalentTalk. You can also send suggestions, uh, maybe possible guest ideas. Uh, we're open to anything. Uh, my producer, Mike, will uh, feed me the best questions and we'll work them into the show if we can. Don't forget, you can also listen to our uh, podcast on iTunes or Android, wherever you get your podcasts. And even subscribe to have them sent to you each week. We have uh, just over 27,000 listeners each week now on the podcast feed, and uh, we, we really appreciate you listening and being a part of the show uh, while you're on the treadmill or at your kid's soccer practice, wherever you may be. So with that said, let's get today's show started. My guests today include Rhonda uh, Hanke, uh, CEO of Bright Path Advisors, and uh, Jay Hathow, he's the SVP and CIO of S. CS Engineers. There's a lot of acronyms there. Um, so Jay will be joining me in the second half of the show, uh, but now let's uh, turn our attention to Rhonda. So welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, your, your humble beginnings, and then, uh, you know, of course, about your company, uh, Bright Path Advisors. Well, you know, I'm a former operating executive in the telecom industry. I worked there almost 20 years and um, raised about $2 billion in organic growth over that time. And then I started uh, my own consulting firm to help other companies grow and an investment banking group. So I've seen a lot of companies um, in a lot of different industries, and uh, I struggled when I was an operating executive like most of them. Mm-hmm. You know, you come into times when you can't make your numbers, where you have disgruntled employees, board members, customers, and you've got to try to figure a way through to get to a successful end. Right. And so I formed Bright Path with that idea, and we really focus on three things. One is thinking bigger. 
And, you know, I like to challenge my clients to figure out what they would do different if they added a zero to their results. Mm -hmm. The second thing we look at is how to move things faster and to get the results quicker. And then lastly, it's like really making tangible results towards the end game. And whether that end game is an exit or a business sale or an acquisition of another company or um, your own private island, whatever that end game is, we try to have that in mind. So it sounds like a big part of the focus is on strategy and strategic development. So maybe you can share a little bit about what what is that many of the CEOs you're working with are, are looking for when it comes to developing a new strategy or direction? Yeah, sure. You know, some of the CEOs I work with are really looking for the winning lottery ticket, right? Aren't we all? <laughs> and they're hoping that somebody's going to come in and give them a big client with a big contract. And while that is great and it's not a strategy, it's luck, it's opportunistic mm-hmm. at best. You know, and by the way, I don't dissuade companies. In fact, I encourage CEOs and companies to look for those opportunities because they can change your world. Right. I mean, I was in a company like that. We were a service business, and a global OEM asked us if we wanted to buy their end-of-life products. Well, we didn't know squat about manufacturing and even less about software development, but we bit. And, you know, almost overnight, we were a global company. We had a seat at the table in our most strategic clients, mm-hmm. and it changed our world. Right. But that's not a strategy. So, you know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert at anything. Strategy is really not different. It's a lot of hard work, right? Because you have to figure out who your customer is and who the competitors and the emerging competitors are and how to create a distinguishable point of differentiation to win. And uh, it's hard to do that while you're running a business. So we come in and partner with CEOs to do that. Well, it sounds like you, with that opportunity you discussed, it really took you into a really important time and a focus, but at the same time, you get lucky, but if you don't have a plan, if now all of a sudden you're not doing the things you need to do you may not still have a seat at that table next year or the year after, right? I mean, it gets to be kind of the same process you're talking about. You can get lucky and you can grow and add a zero, a couple zeros at the end, but the needs are still the same. That that desire for strategy and that really careful implementation is probably, makes it even more important, obviously, with with that happening. But it's the same process, right, for for any company, whether you have that winning lottery ticket or not. You know, Chris, I think the danger of getting one of those opportunities too soon is it becomes like a drug, like a gambling mm-hmm. habit. And you really do start to believe that your strategy is looking for these opportunities as opposed to building something that is sustainable and will grow and take you to the next level. So I think there's almost a danger in it, but you always want to be looking for it. So... You know, getting underneath where the market is going so you really do have a point of leverage and not continuing to do the same things you've always done. Right. You know, I had a a client uh, reached out to me recently, late last year. They had a big RFP coming at them. They had never done a big RFP before. They had no idea how to respond to this, but they knew that it was going to be significant. Mm Mm-hmm. They called me in, and you know I hadn't worked in their industry before, but congratulations to them for not letting that stop them. And together, we assessed their client, 
we assess the incumbent and the market, and we put together something that turned out to be a real winner for them. And now they're 50% bigger than they were last year and have the momentum to continue to grow. Right, right. So the other part of your focus is on talent and the culture that exists within a company. So when you're working with a company and trying to get to the root of the issues, how much of the problem a company has is kind of directly tied to the poor talent or, or even poor talent management? You know, I would say poor talent management, probably 80%. Because, mm-hmm. you know, even the best plays, if not executed well, will fall flat. And I generally see there's two things, Chris. I think, you know, there's a culture element, which is generally um, uh, started in the corner office, right, from the top down. And then there's management, which really begins at the first-line supervisor. You know, there's a book called The Coming Jobs War. Do you know that book? It was written Mm -hmm. by the CEO of Gallup Polls. And they have a whole chapter devoted to employee engagement. And it really opened my eyes because... One of the things they talked about, and they went to many countries, many industries to do the survey, is that in the U.S., only 28% of your employees are actively engaged in your business, trying to make their numbers. Right. And there was half, you know, that are just kind of showing up. I mean, that just kind of makes your heart sink, right, if you're an executive trying to run a business. Yeah, that's incredible numbers. And then 20% are actively working against you. So, you know, the headlines were, gee, if you create an engaged workforce, by the way, your customers will buy more at higher margins, which translates to higher value creation for your business. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that, right? That's the question. And... When they did their analysis in all these countries, what was fascinating is that there were 12 things, 12 things across all jobs, all industries, all countries that were uniform and correlated to employee engagement. And almost all of them land squarely on the shoulders of the first line, those managers. Mm -hmm. Things like that are obvious, right? Things like, do I have the things I need to do my job every day? But things like, um, did someone praise or recognize my work in the last seven days? Mm-hmm. I mean, has somebody praised or recognized your work, Chris, in the last seven days? In the last seven years, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was things like that, right? Somebody right. really cares about me. So if you get around those, when I go into companies today... I always start with an employee survey of those 12 items because I need to know how much work I need to do inside the company before I start working on the strategies that we're going to use to go outside the company. Sure. I mean, we've talked about it many times on the show. It's just the, the attaboy or the pat on the back. So many times people think that a party or throwing more money at somebody is going to solve a problem. It's going to fix something. And, and literally all they need, like you said, you know, you mentioned two huge things. Having the things you need to do your job. Do you have your computer? Do you have the software? Do you have the, you know, the tools? Even stupid things as pens. I, I knew someone who said they had no office supplies for the first week. They were in their own company. It just took them that long for the company to finally get them the stuff they needed. He says, like, I was bringing in stuff from home. You know, and the second thing is just on a very basic level, is anybody 
telling you good job. And sometimes those frontline managers aren't trained properly. Absolutely. And sometimes they're getting hit so hard from the top down that they're just upset. And so now they're disgruntled, maybe not in a way that's against the company, but they're just un- unhappy. And so they're now they're not happy with the people below them. They're supposed to be, you know, rallying the troops, right? You're right. It infects the whole organization. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. So, you know, w- with regards to culture, maybe what are some of the cultural issues you see companies facing? We talked, obviously, a little bit about those 12 things or two of those 12 things you mentioned, but are you seeing other issues from just a general, you know, front facing uh, from a cultural standpoint? Well, you know, I think just like first line managers often don't have the training they need before they go into a job. And by the way, I was one of those, right? You get promoted, but you don't know anything about leading people. You know, there's also executives and business owners that also haven't benefited from some of that kind of training Mm -hmm. and they lead by fear. Right, that's one thing you see quite often. Or there's this very insular, um, sort of camaraderie among the executives, and they don't involve the troops. So when you lead by fear, really great people or people with really great ideas will be quiet, and they won't share those ideas. They'll show up and collect their paycheck, or if they're really vigilant, they'll leave. Right? right? It's not a really good strategy. The other thing I see is companies who, if it's not invented here, um, they have trouble looking outside. But when you look at disruption in the marketplace, it always comes from outside the industry, mm-hmm. right? Or Kodak would have developed the first camera phone, right? Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think that leadership and that culture about involving people, I There was a story about a company, and they surveyed all of their employees, and they asked them to come up with one word that would describe the best company in that industry. And so they had frontline employees and executives and everybody in the mix. And you heard things like you might expect, innovative, right, global, easy to do business with. And there was one fellow that said, scary well everybody looked at me kind of like you're looking at me right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) i looked at them and they said what do you mean by scary can you explain that and he said you know you're on the phone you order something and you turn around and there it is scary right scary good service became their mission and their culture and it transformed that business from that one fellow on the front line Hmm. That's a great story. Yeah, I mean that. I'm not, when you said scary, I was thinking even to the to the point of imagine Samsung and some of these other ones. They think about Apple. They would think out of scary or people compete with Google, right? There's a scare of that because they can just move so quickly and they do so many innovative things when they're the leader in that space. But um, that, that's a great story. They were able to turn that into their own kind of cultural uh, set of values. So. You know, my next question was going to be how important you thought it was to kind of have a stated set of cultural values. And it sounds like from that example, that was a time when maybe that really kind of became their their bread and butter. And a lot of companies will use something like that as culture. And then sometimes they'll use more of a, um, you know, almost like ethics and morals type of a, a set of principles to guide their company. So, you know, would you kind of sit on one side of the fence on where companies really should, you know, drive their more cultural values as opposed to... You know, kind of that moral and ethics part of it. 
You know, I think you have to have both, right? Mm-hmm. I think you have to have the guidelines of how you relate and interact with one another in the outside world. But I think what's important is you've got to inspire people. And, um, you know, people don't get inspired by play nice, right? People get inspired by changing the world, by helping humanity, by doing something mm-hmm. that matters. And um, so I think you've got to play on both sides of that, Chris. This may be a, a bizarre example, but I remember thinking a while back, we used to have two different babysitters when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And one we really liked and one we didn't like. The one we didn't like usually only came around because the other one was busy, right? <laughs> right. But I remember now that word inspiring would sort of be what I could use to the one we did like. Because she would do things that would inspire We would do projects and we had these th- she had things planned out she had and and so she kind of inspired us in a way and my brothers and i were a terror most people did not want to watch us we were you know three boys wrecking havoc and you know getting in fights or with each other or whatever but for some reason that one that one particular babysitter could control us and now i'm thinking about it that word inspiring just immediately came to mind that that she she kind of took us to somewhere else and so she didn't need to discipline us she didn't need to corral us we had something else that we were really focused on whereas the other one just sat on the couch and hoped we didn't kill each other before my parents got home (laughs) you know and it could really almost translate that into management there are people that have a plan that that are really focused and engaged and are trying maybe it's not always the right thing but they're trying and and usually employees really appreciate someone who's trying yeah you know Right. I mean, you've got to have something that you're drawing to and is as long, you know, and, and by the way, I, you know, a fellow I just loved that I used to work with, by the way, we used to have the knockdown drag outs mm-hmm. in meetings, right? And because we came at an issue from very different perspectives. Right. But the one thing I knew is that we both had the same goal in mind and so even though we disagreed as long as you have that common value and common goal and mission that you're trying to accomplish you can get through it sure so obviously we kind of see the alignment of talent and culture and the strategic direction is kind of directly related to the success of the company so maybe you can talk about why that is and what happens if just one of those three is missing you know it is a three-legged stool Right. So if you miss any one, your results are going to suffer. I mean, if you think about it, if you've got great people and a solid culture, but you don't have a strategy, those great people are going to be frustrated because you're not getting the results that they're working so hard to get, and they're not getting the rewards, and they'll leave. Right. You know, if you've got the great strategy and talent, but a poor culture, you're either going to minimize the effects of great people um, and they're going to just collect a paycheck or they'll leave so you really have to have all three elements there was um, you know Inc. 500 did a survey of um, those companies and only 12% said that they were successful because they had some extraordinary idea 88% said that they were successful because of exceptional execution of ordinary ideas, which is really all about people and culture, mm-hmm. making it happen every day. Yeah, that's, an, that's a really an incredible number when you think about it, because I think most people think about this idea. It gets the lottery ticket idea again, right? It's that I'm going to come up with this great idea, I'm going to have this great thing, 
uh, that no one else has. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to invent the the newest mousetrap or widget or whatever. I'm going to be rich, and that's not really it. I mean, you're eighty percent, right? And eighty-eight. That, yeah, eighty-eight percent is exceptional execution. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. So we know employees really want to feel like they are a valuable part of the team. We kind of talked about them really being ingrained so far here today. So what sort of things do you encourage companies to do to ensure that their talent really feels valued? As a reminder, we can say they need to have the stuff they need to have to do their job, right? They need to have a pat on the back every seven days, you kind of <laughs> mentioned. But maybe, were there other things that they need to, to really feel valued? You know, I think um, I would go back to those 12 questions and those 12 items, but right, listening to them, praising them, understanding what they're really good at and making sure they're in a job that they can do what they're very really good at every day. I mean, you think about that such a basic sort of duh. And even when I talk to CEOs and business owners today, you know, one of the things I find in their ranks they're usually very optimistic, very capable, and smart people that tend to try to do a lot of things on their own. Right. And I, you know, and I said, "What are you really great at? You need to do that, and let's get other people who are really great at that other stuff to do it." Mm-hmm. We often put good employees in a hole, right? I mean, it's in a position that we have vacant instead of really letting them leverage what they can do well and understanding what that is. So, you know, I go back to those 12 things that drive engagement. That's one of them. And, in fact, I'm happy to share that list to any of your listeners. I know at the end we'll get some contact information if they'd like that survey. Yeah, we do a great little recap of, of this sh- of this uh, radio program, so we'd love to include that in there, uh, into the blog part, so that people can click on it and go and read it. I don't know. I, I want to go back and read it. It's been a while since I've uh, touched on that book, so I want to go back and hit those as well. That's great. Yeah, I know one of them is just like having a best friend at work. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, right? The right. things that really matter to people. Yeah. We have some people at work that make jokes like, oh, that's my work husband. Or, you know, <laughs> is this just someone they feel close to, connected to, that, you know, that they can rely on at work? Yeah. You know. So uh, before we run out of time here, I want to make sure we ask our favorite question, and that is, what are you reading right now? I'm reading Think Like a Freak. Think I Like hope, a Freak. I hope okay. you won't think poorly of me. No, no, no. <laughs> No, that is the authors of Freakonomics right. and um, Levitt and Dubner. And, you know, one of the interesting chapters I had just finished reading was really about driving incentives and how they can often have unintended consequences. And um, you talked about, uh, you know, when you were a kid or I don't know if you have young children, but one of the authors was trying to potty train their child mm-hmm. and uh, his wife couldn't do it. So he, the economist, took over. <laughs> And he figured this out. He was going to give his um, child uh, M&Ms every time she went to the bathroom. Right. That worked out really good for the first three days. And then the child figured it out, right? So every two minutes, the child had to go to the bathroom to collect on those M&Ms. So um, it's a really good story study to think about how people will try to game the system if you're not careful. (laughs) (laughs) So how can people uh, reach out to you or find out more about you if they're interested in, in, in Bright Path Advisors? So our website is Bright Path Advisors. My email is, you know, Rhonda, R-H-O-N-D-A, at Bright Path Advisors. And, um, you know, I'm 
be delighted to talk to any of your viewers, you know, listeners. Thank you. Great. Yeah, you can ca- catch her on the on the net on LinkedIn or uh, yeah. email her directly. We really appreciate you being on the show, and um, certainly learned a lot. I know why the listeners will have learned a lot, and we'd love to have you come back at some point and give us an update on what you're doing. No, oh, thanks a lot, Chris. Appreciate it. So Jay Hatho is coming up next after this quick commercial break. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show and listen to past shows by visiting talenttalkradio.com, or you can also visit uh, octalkradio.net and click on the Shows tab, and of course click on uh, Talent Talk. Uh, We're coming up on our year anniversary, but we have uh, already amassed a huge following, and we really, really appreciate everyone tuning in each week and uh, downloading the podcast uh, 27,000 of you last week uh, that did that. We were, it's just uh, remarkable. So thank you. My next guest is Jay Hatho. He's the SVP and CIO of SCS Engineers. Uh, don't forget to tweet your questions live right now for Jay by sending them to at PeopleG2 and using that hashtag Talent Talk. So Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. So uh, Jay was supposed to be in the studio with me today, but uh, apparently was hang gliding and uh, then skateboarding and then fell and broke your wrist or something really a great story like that, right? Yeah, I wish it was that great of a story. Yeah. <laughs> but I uh, hope you uh, you mend quickly. We won't ask for the real story. We'll stick with the hang gliding. That sounds uh, more adventurous. So Yeah, it sounds great. So tell us about yourself and, uh, of course, your company, SCS Engineers. So I've been in the uh, technology industry for pretty much all my life. Uh, my my forte, I, I guess I would call it, uh, would be that I, I get hired to companies either to start something or uh, typically to fix something in, in technology organizations. Uh, so I've been in several companies where I've, I've started tech, technology organizations from the ground up, you know, start from zero and build it on up. And, and then I've been in other organizations where I've been hired to go and uh, fix organizations that are there and just needs a little help to get it going in the right direction. Uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, 25, 30 years of my life here. So, so SES is an interesting company. SES is a uh, uh, environmental engineering firm. Um, we're about a thousand people across the United States. Uh, we primarily focus on 
on landfills. Uh, we do a lot of engineering and landfills. I took this job about four years ago, uh, and just like most of your listeners, probably like myself, I expected a landfill. You know, you just, just a big dump truck goes out there and dumps a bunch of trash, and they walk away. Right. That's not the case. Uh, there's a lot of uh, engineering that's involved with a landfill, um, and a lot of that engineering is, um, you know, it's just you got to make sure that things are done correctly. Otherwise, you got a lot of uh, gas leaks and you know leachate, which is water runoff and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of engineering that's involved to make that happen. And so, so many we do this, yes. And so many landfills end up being then later on kind of turned into usable land again, right? That's correct. And even even doing the usable land, there's still uh, we we call we put in wells there. This, these wells are to uh, you know to get the methane out of the ground because there's always methane being produced. Uh, so either you got to burn it off or turn it into energy. So we have another division that turns that methane uh, into energy and, and pumps it back into uh, either generators or pumps it back into lines, uh, gas lines uh, for use. Well, that's that's incredible. So all of our all of our trash can can at least be used, re, you know, reused a little bit. Uh, and, you know, those landfills aren't, aren't completely lost if they can you know convert them. But uh, I know for many years, I mean, it's always been a big push though that. You know, are we out kind of outpacing where we can put all of our trash? So, you know, the solutions that it sounds like your company's coming up with be really important. Yeah, I mean, that, that's our goal. We'll try to come up with ways to maintain and operate these plant facilities in a more efficient manner. So, as the chief technology officer, you know, what are your kind of your primary roles then at SCS? And you, you essentially, what do you focus on, and what's kind of the the, the passion there in the industry? So, uh, um, you know, coming into this industry, uh, like it's, uh, from the, my previous background, which was uh, uh, which was building a trading platform, coming into this industry, you know, what I realized when I first got here uh, about three and a half, four years ago, was that technology in this industry is kind of it's kind of left it behind. Um, you know, I came here and I saw there's a lot of technology that we could do uh, in, implement into the the well fields and the and the gas fields that we have on some of these sites that we could run technology and uh, and, and use that to you know, generate information that with that information that we can make decisions on how to handle these landfills a lot better than we uh, we were doing just just through the pure use of technology. So we've started some. We started some major technology initiatives in the last three or four years to uh, put remote sensors in these landfills uh, to re- remotely collect the data, uh, get that data, and put it into uh, a centralized location, which everybody, including our clients, uh, could go to websites and start looking at this data and, and do something with that data to make sure that the, the landfill itself is operating correctly. So the, the EPA puts on uh, specific guidelines for these landfills on how they could operate and what regulations they have to meet, and really there's a ton of data that comes out of these landfills uh, that are used to determine if you know if you have a gas plume that's going somewhere or if you have runoff from uh, from the, the the landfill that's going into neighborhoods. We got to track all of that stuff. And, and before uh, I got here, there's a lot of human interaction or human beings going out there and getting some of this stuff and. Uh, we started doing this all remotely. Now we, we don't have to send a lot of humans out there. We can get this stuff remotely and sent back into uh, our primary application. So, being a technology-based business, then your market's kind of always constantly changing. It sounds like you know you can be doing things to improve it, hopefully to improve the process, improve the technology. So, what do you see as your biggest challenges then with this current company? It's really going beyond. To me, it's going beyond the, the landfill stuff that we're doing today. Um, I think the technology that we've kind of invented and, and we're putting into these landfills go, goes beyond, much beyond the just the landfill itself. Uh, so I think the biggest challenges for for SCS and 
for me, it's just to expand beyond that and, and you know find other avenues for us to take this technology into. So we're also looking into the oil field uh, side of the business to go and, and try to expand into that area as well. You know, you're, you're doing these new things, these kind of these cool things, and up, up upgrading that, that technology, and, and really kind of you know making an impact and a real difference within communities. So. What do you feel your company provides that really would kind of attract the best talent then within your industry? Well, I, I think for, for from a technology standpoint, I think the, the things we're doing with the technology is what's attracting people. Uh, that's the one thing from a technology standpoint. The other thing is, from a company's perspective, SCS is an ESOP-owned company, so we're an employee-owned company. Um, so, I, you know, usually when people come to SCS, I, I mean, I, like I said, I'm four years old, uh, four years young, I guess, in this company, and uh, um, there's people here that have been here 30, 40 years. I mean, a lot of people have been here 30, 40 years, and it, because, because SCS is such a, a great company, uh, and because it's an ESOP-owned company, they have some ownership and stake in what's happening in the company, so they want the company to be su- successful. And I think that's what attracts a lot of people, not only just from the technology we're doing, but also the, the fact that they have a ownership in the company. Do you think that's a real driving force then in the overall success of the company, or do you think there's other things that really contribute, you know, just as, as equally or, or more to that equation? No, I think you know, I think that's a pretty uh, pretty big driving force. I mean, there's a, everybody. I mean, our motto is ownership makes a difference, and. Uh, Everybody feels like they're an owner. I mean, uh, every dollar we spend or every uh, nickel we spend, people question whether that's the right thing. And um, you, you know, because it's it's really if you think about it, it's, it's their money that's that we're spending it on. Right, 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 right. It doesn't go back to them. Maybe in the end of the, end of the yep. year, into investment or uh, what have you. Yep. So, so kind of you know, sitting at the sea level, then uh, how do you evaluate success in the company and? Yeah, especially because you are an employee-owned uh, company. Does, do you think that different differs from you know the the guy or the girl on the bottom or someone who's that mid-level manager? Uh, no, I, I you know for me the the way I look at uh, whether whether what I do is successful or not is how well our clients or how well our business or how well the new new technology is taking hold. Uh, I mean, the last three years, you know, we went from having one or two sites with this technology to having over a hundred sites now that are using this technology. These are clients coming on coming to us now and asking for this technology. So uh, I think that's the way I, I measure my success from a technology standpoint. So you know, I wear two hats at SCS. One is the CIO role, and one is the CTO role. Uh, and as a CIO role, you know, I, I look at what uh, I could bring into the, from an IT infrastructure's perspective. To make my folks um, behave, or not behave, but be more productive uh, in their environments they're in, um, and adding new tools, and we've added a ton of tools in the last three years I've been in to been here to make these uh, make our folks more productive and just give them tools to be more productive than what they used to. You have kind of an interesting component with being employee owned because most companies are not. So, you know, we talk a lot on this show about culture. So I'm kind of curious, you know, if you feel like the values that are part of your company's culture, um, you know, how, how do they play in, in, into it? And, and do you think that, you know, there's a, you're effectively communicating that on a regular basis as those new people are coming in the door? You know, we've done several acquisitions in the last couple of years. Um, and, and I will tell you, um, doing those acquisitions, so I look at those as new people coming in, there's a little bit of a culture shock. I mean, uh, folks don't realize 
what it means to become an ESOP. And um, honestly, to me, even uh, there was a little bit of a culture shock. Uh, even though I've been here three and a half, four years, I'm still I'm still a new guy, and uh, it is a little bit of a culture shock every time that goes something goes. And all the companies I previously worked at, well, you know, they were all publicly traded company, and uh, and uh, you know, every quarter we had to make uh, we have to make revenue and we have to make margin, and so so there is a little bit of a little bit of that. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we look at every quarter here, and we need to know where we are and what we need to do and where we need to go. But it's not this public scrutiny that you would get in a publicly traded company. Right, right. So when you think back over all the people that have influenced you, um, you know, kind of early on in your life or, uh, you know, early in your career or while you're working at some of those publicly traded companies, do you, who would you maybe identify as being you know, kind of one or two people that have really helped you, you know, kind of really form into the leader that you are today? I think it's got. It has to be my uh, my very first uh, my very first boss out of out of out of college. Um, I was an intern uh, for uh, a Japanese company here in the in Southern California, and uh, um, he I worked there. And then right after college, he hired me, and uh, you know he really influenced me. I think the way he approached work and um, the, the way he looked at people and the way he talked to folks and kind of just guided me through the first couple of stages I would say in my life. I mean, you know, when I was young, I was, you know, aggressive, and I just wanted to get everything done, and he's the one to kind of tame, tame it down and calm it down for me and, uh, uh, and you know, kind of helped me work through some of the, uh, the methodical ways that I was thinking. Uh, and I think, I think so I, I would have to go back to my first boss for doing that. You know, we, we get that a lot. Usually um, I say the two most common answers are a parent or a first boss. Uh, it's amazing how impactful those you know, kind of first leaders that you have in a job can have such an impact on your career, both positively, negatively, you know, make you realize maybe you're in the wrong industry or doing the wrong thing, uh, or maybe you're right on track and you want to, you know, be just like that person. So that's a great story. You know, one of the things that I, I think very, maybe in the back of people's minds, technology is maybe sort of very black and white and it's very, um, linear, and so there isn't a lot of creativity that goes into it. But I, I know I kind of sit on the side of, of seeing a lot of the technology and integrations and things we do at my company, and there's an incredible amount of creativity that has to go in sometimes to make something work or to find a solution to a problem or to find a way to make what the customer wants to happen a reality. So uh, I know IT folks are incredibly creative in what they do. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your creative process and you know, what's working with your team and you know, how you brainstorm and how you kind of come up with solutions internally. Well, I, you know, I think uh, I, I got to start with saying that my, my thing for me is to hire the right people. And, um, and, I, and I always hire people that are a lot smarter than I am. Uh, if, you go, if you walk into one of my, my meetings or any one of our brainstorm meetings, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. In fact, I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. Uh, I find that you, if you hire the smartest guys in the room, um, you, you, you're a lot better off than you are if you were the only, you're the smartest guy. And then what I find is you sit down and we start having conversations about what we want to do and where we want to go. And, and usually those brainstorming sessions um, kind of lead to an answer and people, people come up with their answers and we all end up in the right direction. I, I find that, you know, I could have an idea or a strategy or a vision, but if the folks that don't work for uh, that work for me uh, can't ha- understand that strategy or vision, then it's never going to get accomplished. So, so my primary goal as a leader, I think, is when I go into these strategy and vision setting meetings or coming up with ideas, 
uh, I, I want them to buy into the strategy and the vision, and I need them to feel like they're re- responsible for that. Otherwise, uh, you know, you can never execute on that. So as we have these discussions, you know, things could change, but, but usually they convince themselves or convince me that that's maybe not the right direction, and we put the right direction. So I think, I think getting buy-in for, for a strategy or a vision is probably the most key to getting any, uh, any successful project completed. Are there particular, you know, um, things that you do to, to, to kind of get people thinking or to get them to be creative? I and mean, sometimes people have, a, you know, an exercise or they have a, a, a process. Um, there's a few famous CEOs out there that are uh, known for actually to intentionally try to get people fighting, um, you know, to really start to spur uh, creativity. So do you guys do anything in particular to, that, you know, that my, the listeners might be able to replicate uh, within their own companies? So, so what I typically do is when I walk into a, gr- uh, a, f- a group of folks that work for me and, and we're sitting about a, a, a strategy or a project, um, I usually start asking questions. Hey, you know, here's what I'm thinking, um, and here's the direction I think we need to go. Um, is there any, you know, I usually ask the question, is there any negatives about it? Well, let's pick some, put some holes through this thing and see what the issues are. And, and I usually criticize myself on this and say, hey, you know, this, this is what I was thinking, but I don't think this may work because of this. Um, and then folks say, yeah, no, no, I, Jay, it, it'll work because of that, or no, it'll, it may not work, but we may want to be able to do this. So I walk into the room knowing kind of idea of what I want, but uh, knowing in my head that I have to come up with some negatives about it so I can start getting that ball rolling to get that, you know, get those creative juices going on it. That, that's typically what I do. Right, right. So one of our uh, favorite questions to ask our guests, because we get such wide range of answers and, and things that we never would have guessed we, we'd ever uh, get from from them, but uh, and that is what are you reading right now, and can you tell us about that book? So I am. I just finished reading a book. Actually, um, it's called the The Work of Leaders. Um, there's, a, there's like four different authors. One was Julie, Julie Straw. It, it's a book. It's a book about actually uh, vision, alignment, and execution. They call it the VAE model. I don't know if you heard of that. Yeah. Um, so I'm taking this class uh, that uh, is called uh, 360 Leadership Class, and one of the, the, the requirements for the class is to read this book. I thought the book was very interesting. Uh, it tells you, you know, discuss vision, and then you discuss the alignments of that vision, and then you discuss the execution of that uh, of the vision. And it's interesting, as you read the book, for me anyway, I realized that I was kind of already doing some of this stuff already. I just never had a, uh, um, you know, somebody describe to me exactly what it is. But if you read the book, um, it kind of describes you, and a lot of your listeners may already be doing it. Just, but it kind of, kind of, uh, you know, you get in a written format of what it is that you've already been doing. It's kind of interesting to read. Kind of an art- articulating the process, and then you can really be maybe a little more confident about it. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a pretty interesting book. It just like I said, it's, it's, I'm sure you folks out there are already doing it, but it, it kind of helps you identify what the what the traits you have and what traits you're using. Um, that that if you read the book, that it will kind of give you a guidance of what, what direction to go. So we, we talked earlier a little bit about uh, finding the best talent, and you, you you mentioned that having you know smarter people in the room than you, uh, especially on your team, it really helps you uh, meet those challenges and meet those goals and, and and improve your company. So that isn't always easy though for companies to find those types of people. Um, they either can't find them. Uh, they don't exist, uh, they can't pay for them. I mean, there's a lot of challenges in there. So what do you see as your biggest challenge, uh, your company, to really recruit those top people? It's, it's everything you just said, Chris. I mean, it, it, it's tough because uh, the market out there, uh, I don't know what your other listeners are finding, but the market's getting tighter and tighter. Um, 
and, and you, you got to bring some. You got to bring something other than you say, "Hey, we have a company. Can you please come and work for us?" Because uh, the market's getting tighter, and folks have a little bit more opportunity to go other places. And uh, for me, I think it's a little bit tougher because it's you know we're not we're an engineering firm, um, but we're you know mechanical, civil engineering guys and principal engineers. We're not a full blown technology shop like a, you know an HP or, or an Apple. So it's harder for me to get developers uh, to come in here. But I, I think the way I bring them in is to say, hey, we're working on something that's relatively new in the industry. We're working on something that's creative that nobody's thought about before. Um, and that's how I get people to come in. Um, but it is, it's still tough to bring these folks in. It's, uh, it's a tough market out there. And, um, you, you know, and, and some of the times we, we go to friends and family and find out if there's any you know, developers or people out there that are looking for work and, like I say, it, it, it's we try to find the same fit. It, you know, I, I look at us as a team, and if one person in the team is not pulling their weight, then the whole team suffers. So it's it's tough to bring in that right person that'll have the right chemistry. And another thing, Chris, for me, honestly, uh, if if that person doesn't work out, we know pretty quickly that person won't work out. We let them go relatively quickly. We don't. I, I don't like dragging things on because it just hurts the team. Sure. Yeah, and that's a tough thing to do. You know. They, uh that motto of failing fast is is really important, but it's a, it's a challenge for a lot of companies to do. Uh, you know, did you train them properly? You know, did they have everything you need to be successful? Was it them? Was it us? I mean, a lot of times you can really kind of go through that, and before you know it, they're then they're too long, and now it's it, it can be very difficult. They may not have integrated correctly. They may not have been helping the team very well. And you, know, you can also like a person, even though they're not a good fit for your company. They can be a nice person. Uh, there's always a lot of challenges in, in, in failing fast with people sometimes. Yeah, no, we've had some really nice guys, but they just didn't fit into the team. And I, you know, it, the longer you drag some of that stuff on, the worse it is for your team. Yeah. So, you know, once you have them on your team and they're in and they you know, kind of passed your test there and you, you, you kept them around, uh, how do you encourage others then who work for you to really develop their own talent to become better? Uh, it's one thing for them to to work hard and to do a good job and to maybe come up with some great solutions for the technology. But there's also a component of them. It's really important that they are improving themselves, whether it's learning a new uh, code, a new system, a new project, new technology, uh, how to play guitar. I mean, something that is causing them to be better than the person they were yesterday. So do you guys do anything around that, realm? Yeah, so so once a month, uh, I encourage everybody, and I, it's up to them, but I encourage everybody to take just one day uh, a month and uh, not to do any of their normal day-to-day work. Uh, they just they don't do any projects that are assigned to them. They don't do anything. They just pick some technology they want to muck around with, and uh, they start goofing around and see what it's like. Um, so, because I, I I agree with you, I, I think people need to expand their horizons, and it's good for the company, it's good for them themselves, and, and, and overall, it's just going to help both parties. So, I, I give I encourage everybody once a month just to take a break and uh, go and look at new technologies, or do something, or create something that's beyond what they're doing now, and just come up with some ideas. That's a great idea. As long as you can be disciplined with that and do it. And not let it pass a month or two because there's deadlines or there's, you know, everyone's running their head cut off. Um, yeah, it's a great thing to do to, especially I think for maybe technology people. There's certain certain groups of, in the house that, you know, need that time to play around and to tinker and uh, to really discover something. You can't just read it in a manual or in a, in a blog. You need to actually kind of play around with something to see if maybe it might be a, a good solution for you down the road, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, because I mean, those solutions, usually those types of solutions, just people brainstorming, you come up with better ideas than if you were to sit there, all together, just sit in a room and come up with something. Yeah. So I was wondering, uh, it's a question we ask from time to time, and we usually get some interesting answers, that maybe you could talk about a painful lesson you learned in your career and, and how it affected you and kind of, you know, maybe the direction it, it then pushed you to. I, I've learned a lesson, heck, I I'm still learning lessons every day, but 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 I think that the biggest lesson for me as I learned through my career is is to listen. Um, you, you know, I'm I'm one of those types of guys. When I was younger, and, and even when I was uh, a pretty new manager or leader, that um, I already kind of had the solution to the answer in my head. So when I walk into a meeting and somebody's you know going on about a problem, I already know what the answer to the problem is going to be. Um, so I just either cut them off or just jump to the end and say, "Okay, here's what the solution is." I find that's not helpful. <laughs> right. um, I, you, you know, you have to listen to folks, um, and you have to communicate with folks. Um, even even though they came to take, they came to the same conclusion at the end. Um, pushing them to that conclusion, it's not helpful because then you, they just resent the fact that you pushed them there. Uh, whether that, whether it was the same answer or not, they just resent the fact that you pushed them there. So, my biggest, if I could give your listeners a, a bit of advice, my biggest advice to everybody is just to listen, let folks continue with their train of thought and then finish their conversations that's the biggest that's the biggest lesson i've learned in my life yeah i mean listening is a huge one and and it's also that kind of maybe a sub point there that you really can't tell anybody anything you know you have to help maybe help them discover it help them find it you know it's one thing if someone says ask you a very black and white simple question but when you're in a meeting and you're kind of you know discovering an idea or arguing about what to do many times you have to help other people discover that uh, is telling him just doesn't seem to work. It, it no, really- I think I think if you're a good leader, you have to guide him um, to a certain point. And and it, hey, you know what? It may not be the answer that you wanted, but you guide him. You guided him there, and it, it might it might have been the right answer. Yeah. Well, if you already know the answer, walking in the room, there's probably no point in having the meeting. But that's, that's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we're just at the end here, and I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, how can people uh, reach you if they're interested in learning more about uh, SCS engineers? Well, I- I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so that's not a problem. And uh, if anybody wants uh, just an email, you can send uh, an email to uh, the letter J, Hatho, H-A-T-H-O, at scsengineers, with an S, dot com. So, uh, Jay, thanks again for, for being our guest today. And we'd love to have you come back and uh, let us know how you're doing and your company's doing uh, and, and get more of your, uh, your good ideas and wisdom. Sure. Thank you. So tune in uh, next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to hear uh, a couple of our past shows. Uh, thank you again to Rhonda Hankey and uh, Jay Hatho for being on today. Uh, with the holiday, we'll be uh, off of uh, next week and the 4th of July week after that. So we'll be playing some of our best of shows. We'll return with a live show with Barry Moltz uh, of the uh, Schaffron Moltz Group. And is uh, a pretty good author. And Shirley Davis, President and CEO of SDS Global Enterprises in a couple weeks. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.